What is happening? Welcome to the premiere episode of Potty Train Me, the podcast where the big kids give you everything you need to know about sports and all things alike. By listening to our episodes, I can assure you that you'll be mesmerized by our greatness and learn enough to be able to launch a podcast of your own, or most likely you'll just learn exactly what not to do after listening to us. Regardless of where this personal journey takes you, we are stoked to have you here listening. I am Greg Silver, and here alongside me in spirit is the better half of the operation, Jonathan P. Jenkins. How are you doing, JJ? I'm feeling fantastic, man. How about yourself? I am fantastic as well. It's good to have you with me. It's good to start this journey. We have a great episode for you today. Obviously, it's been a really weird time in our country battling not just COVID-19, but also poverty and recent events of racial injustice. Uh, so much has you know, been affected and so much needs to change. And although sports are far from the most important thing in 2020, they have been impacted in ways that neither of us really could have ever seen coming in our lifetime. Um, you know, both JJ and I have begun to realize what a giant role sports have played in our lives. So what we wanted to do for the launching of Potty Train Me is reflect on some of our most memorable and emotional moments as sports fans. This includes not just the euphoria, but also the most brutal heartbreaks. And one reason why I love getting to do this with JJ is that we support very different interests as fans. You know, you got one NorCal kid, one SoCal kid, one Warriors fan, one Lakers fan. JJ loves the New England Patriots. I cannot stand them. Uh, We also do have one special common interest in the sports world, which I think you might find out about later in the show. So let's get right into it, starting with the happy memories and a story from JJ. Definitely. Well, during this pandemic, it's got me really thinking about where my uh, where my sports fandom really really burst itself from. And that's taking me back to about when I was, you know, six or seven years old when my dad took me to uh, my first Laker game, actually. And it was a, it was a pretty special day. I'm not going to lie. You know, it was, uh, I was still in kindergarten and out of nowhere, my dad comes and picks me up from there, like totally unusual day. And I said, dad, where are we going? And in my dad's usual self, he said, Oh, you'll see, which always to this day pisses me off. Typical dad thing, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So we go home, we get dressed. I see he's got his Lakers head on, but I'm six years old, so I'm none the wiser. And, uh, you know, we're driving we're driving to what would obviously be the Staples Center. But when you're six years old, man, that drive feels like a 10-hour road trip. I'm not even joking to you. Like, I was complaining the entire way. And I bet there are at least some points where my dad was thinking about just, like, turning around because I was complaining so much. I was literally like, are we there yet? Or where are we going? Every, every like, minute. Not even joking. <laughs> so uh, I see uh, we're, like, passing downtown L.A. And I see the Staples Center. And I'm like, man, I literally thought in my head, I was like, man, I wish I could go to a Lakers game someday. And I know my dad was a fan at the time. That's how, obviously, I became a fan. But uh, 
I see we get off in downtown Los Angeles. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's really cool. I didn't know the Lakers had a game that night either. So it was pretty interesting. We kept uh, following streets that were getting closer and closer to Staples Center. And I was like, wow. Okay. Uh, That's even more interesting. Uh, (laughs) Wonder what's going on here. And then we park across the street from Staples Center. <laughs> then that's when I start to figure out, uh, okay, well, <laughs> this might be my lucky day. <laughs> my dad gets out and we start walking there. Dude, I almost exploded. Seriously. Like my excitement couldn't have been greater because the day that you get to see your like favorite basketball team play in person is like the day that you like it's the day of your life and so once we got inside man we had fantastic seats i was i was so excited and you know like that game too against the clippers of all the teams like in la la rivalry they couldn't have been any better and uh you know i was excited to see kobe and but funnily enough that wasn't the most uh it wasn't the most exciting person to watch because my favorite player not all time obviously it's kobe but my favorite player back then was a guy named smush parker do you know about smush parker wow i I don't even know who that is educate me (laughs) exactly he only played he literally only played on the lakers for two seasons and he was kind of a bum although he had his two seasons on the lakers were decent he was my favorite player solely because his name was Smush. Or so I found out later that was his nickname. It's uh, <laughs> So I was so excited to see Smush Parker play and Kobe, <laughs> and Kobe Bryant. And just getting to watch them, uh, just getting to watch them in the backcourt, man, was like so fun. It was so fun to see. And that game too, it was, I remember it was a close game pretty much all the way down. I remember uh I remember seeing Chris Kamen too. Dude, Chris Kamen looked like uh <laughs> he looked like a homeless man to be honest. <laughs> he had the uh, he had a little he had a little rat hair coming down from uh like the uh like uh the little rat character from Harry Potter. He had the exact same style hair and oh my god, it's like ingrained into my brain right now. <laughs> you can't you can't get rid of that. You can't unsee that, but you know, the game, the game was like fluid throughout and it was just Kobe putting on a show. Literally. He had, I think 30 points after the third quarter and just, it was, I remember specifically my dad getting so into it. It was like, there's two minutes left and we're up by, I'd say three or four and Kobe literally just takes over. I remember him, the clock winding down and he was at the baseline. He was being guarded and there was a double team coming on the way. He spins around his defender, but the other defender came to double team. So he was kind of sandwiched in between them with like one second left on the clock. And he throws up just a little floater of a prayer and it, and it rims around and goes down. And like the whole arena just erupted. It was insane. And like from there, it was just like cruise control for them because Kobe just took it the rest of the way, man. But honestly, that was one of the most, that was by far my favorite Laker game because it was my first. And that's something that, you know, you'll just never forget, right? 
Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I think, the, you know, going back to what you said at the beginning with just, you know, getting picked up from school and going to the game. I was a freshman in high school one day and I had plans to go to San Jose to watch some March Madness to see uh, Cal face off against UNLV. And that entire day, I just could not focus. So that's that's like a 14 year old me. And we're talking about six year old you. So I can only imagine the level of focus that was going on in your head. Um, but tell me a bit about the, uh, what was the Clippers team like? I feel like the Clippers have had this history of just being that other LA team. And, you know, they got better in the Lob City years, but obviously didn't deliver in terms of championships. And, you know, now they're kind of entering a new era with Kawhi and Paul George. But for a long time, they were just kind of the scrubs of Los Angeles while Kobe Bryant and company were the reigning LA champs on the other side. Do you remember anything about who was on the Clippers at that time? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, you know, they had, they had some decent pieces. I don't want to completely disrespect them. Like they had Corey McGetty who has the worst nickname of all time, but he was a, he was a pretty decent score. Look it up. If you want to, if you want to find out, uh, there's a, there was Chris Kamen, who actually was like, a, I know I bagged on him, but he was a solid NBA player. I think he was an all-star at least once. And then they had Elton Brand, too, who was Elton Brand, I think, was probably their best player. So, like, you throw, like, a little Sam Cassell in the mix, who's decent. You know, you got you got a pretty good line. You got, like, a pretty average lineup there, I'd say. But, you know, they were... At their best, they were respectable. I shouldn't I shouldn't bag on them as much as I do, but they're the Clippers, so, <laughs> so you know. But yeah, they were they were definitely better than what I think most people make them out to be. Don't get me wrong, they had their bad years though. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean I don't mean to bag on them too much either. I think uh I guess what I remember about the Clippers is just not remembering much growing up. In that era, that's just kind of what I'm going off of. But I really like your Marcus Camby homeless man description. Uh, The NBA has had a lot of characters with physical appearance, such as Birdman and J.R. Smith and all his tattoos, to name some. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's amazing. I think uh, I've never been to Staples Center, but when you describe the crowd erupting like that, it reminds me of... Oracle Arena and go into Warriors games, especially in their prime. And there's just nothing like it. And, um, you know, now that we tragically lost Kobe, I imagine that that memory just gets more and more special each day, you know, being so fortunate to see him play. Oh, definitely. You know, yeah, it was pretty, uh, I don't really, (laughs) we'll, we'll, uh, we'll maybe save this topic for another day, but definitely rest in peace, Kobe, man. We really miss him out here. Yeah, that was a tough, tough day, even as a Warriors fan. Um, well, speaking of the Warriors, uh, you just talked about one of your favorite sports memories involving the NBA. I'm going to do the same. Uh, this is only a few years back. It is 2016 Western Conference Finals, Game 6 versus the Thunder at Oklahoma City. And this is when Durant and Westbrook were still on the same team. This is the year that the Warriors had the 73 and nine regular season. And, you know, the playoffs got a little dicey and all of a sudden they find themselves down three, one in a best of seven series uh, against a team with, you know, looking back two of the best four or five players in the world. But 
you know, as a Warriors fan, uh, I've been to some great games, but this one actually comes from my household and still to this day might be my favorite Warriors game I've ever watched. And so Michael Scott once said, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. You know, I'm not going to say whether I am superstitious or just a little stitious. I think it depends on the person you ask. But after hearing this story, some people may think I have serious issues in my family. One of them, my mother. Um, So I'm watching this game on the couch with my mom, my dad, and my younger brother. And obviously, we're down 3-2 in the series. We were able to win Game 5 at home in a close one. and. Game six is happening and it's like, okay, you know, if we're going to like lose the series, it's probably going to be here with the Thunder playing so hot and at home and uh, as annoying as their fans could be sometimes. I think I was mostly just annoyed at what good fans they were. They were so loud and so behind their team. So not an easy atmosphere to play in. Um, So, I mean, what people do remember from this game is that Clay Thompson had 41 points, a playoff record of 11 three-pointers in a game, and that the Warriors ultimately ended up winning. Obviously, I'm going to totally nerd out and go into the details here. So the Thunder come out really hot. Um, you know, the Warriors are struggling a little bit, just looking to settle into the game. And they take an early deficit, nothing too crazy or stressful. But obviously, when you're on the brink of elimination in a historic season, it's going to be stressful no matter what. And so my family starts, you know, trying to change things up and, you know, making different people stand up versus sitting down, uh, you know, because that's one of the go to's, of course, for superstition. And at one point, we make my mom stand up. And when she stands up, the game goes better than anybody else standing up or for that matter any other combination of people standing up so my mom who totally cares and has gotten into all of our sports teams i don't want to discredit her amazing fandom but probably cared the fourth most out of this group on the couch is not that thrilled about it and she kind of starts you know pushing back a little bit and it's like oh come on come on like no i don't want to do that and you know the hardcore people are like, no, you're like, you're doing this because, you know, we're going to win this game. And if not, then I want to look back and say that we gave it everything we had. And of course, you know, this is how it works. It has nothing to do with the ball touching the hands of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. It's mostly about, uh, you know, who stands up versus who sits down uh, as the real sports fans know. Exactly. um, So anyway, the score is 50 to three at halftime. We're down or sorry, 53, 48 um, at halftime, but it felt so much worse than that. And, you know, that is a totally stressful first half. It felt so much worse than a five point deficit going into the locker room. Um, And just a side note, like I know I got to enjoy Kevin Durant playing for my own team for three years. And I'm so excited to see when he comes back. Uh, it's just scary to watch how unguardable, unguardable of a player he is. Just like, I mean, you just can't, you can't stop that shot. He might be the greatest scorer of all time when all is said and done. And to think that we had to endure a seven game series against this guy, you know, part of me is like, yeah, no wonder we were just getting killed 
the first half of the series. Uh, that guy is a freak. And so, you know, the third quarter, it's more of the same, uh, you know, kind of back and forth. We're hanging in. It's 83 to 75 Thunder after three quarters. And, you know, then it starts getting really stressful because time's running down and my mom is getting progressively more and more antsy about this standing up thing and, you know, completely doesn't believe in the magic that so clearly existed. And, you know, I think if I had to pick a single defining moment of this game, it's got to be when there's 4.59 to go in the fourth quarter. The Warriors are down 96-89. Hopes are slim. And Clay Thompson, who already has a hot hand and feels like he's just due for a miss, kind of like awkwardly turns from about 29 feet out at the top of the key with Russell Westbrook giving a hand in his face and drills a three. And I'm just like, dude, like what we're watching is so special right now. And I know people love to hate on the Warriors, but yeah, I was like, you know, win or lose, this is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't know how we're still in this game. And, you know, say what you want about how the season ended. I know we did not win the championship that year. Um, even with 73 wins, but that last five minute stretch was just unbelievable. And, you know, just, just rally and rally and rally and never give up. And, uh, you know, Andre Godala, former finals MVP was, I felt like the unsung hero of that game, making big plays on defense. Um, but I'll never forget that moment when Steph got fouled with 10 seconds left and just holds up the number seven, like, Let's go close this out at home. Um, and so, yeah, I know I skipped over some of the specifics of the fourth quarter, but you guys get the big picture. And I think the reason that was so special for me is, number one, because maybe, just maybe, my mother believed in the magic of standing up, even when she really wanted to sit down. <laughs> and obviously, um, just because I think that was probably the first time ever in the Kerr era with the Warriors where I truly felt like, man, this might be it. Like, we could be done. I know we were down 2-1 against the Grizzlies and 2-1 against the Cavs in 2015, but even then, it wasn't on the complete brink of elimination. Um, and I do want to uh, take this last section here to state the difference between Warriors fans and Cleveland fans of any kind. I know I'm about to alienate an entire fan base here, but <laughs> the difference between other fans such as the Warriors fans is when we come back from this 3-1 lead, there's this sense of, oh my God, we did it. This is the greatest thing ever. Could you believe it? I never thought it was going to happen. And if you're Cleveland, you're celebrating your first championship in 52 years and quite possibly your only championship. Wow, I can't speak uh, for the next 52 years. And sorry, I know I'm, I'm salty, but the whole thing is, oh, uh, Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. I'm like, dude, I don't care if it was the Thunder we played or the Cavs or the Heat or freaking Michael Jordan. I mean, we got a chance to win and come back. And you guys are focused on the fact that there was a 3-1 lead blown. By the way, the Indians blew a 3-1 lead. Uh, just in case you forgot about that. <laughs> Let it out, man. Let it out. <laughs> it's okay. I'm about to go into the sad section, so I'm going to get it while I can. 
But um, anyway, just to sum it up in one sentence, I felt like it was the ultimate test of resilience, grit, and there are so few groups of people who could do what the Warriors did that day. I will never, ever forget that game. Yeah, it really sounds like the, like the 2016 was maybe one of your favorite teams of the whole Warriors dynasty. I mean, like, did you have any, uh, did you have any Smush Parker type favorite players where they're not necessarily the star, but, you know, they have a special place in your heart? Yes, absolutely. And his name is Ian Clark. I was a big, big, big Ian Clark guy. And I think my thing with him was just like, yeah, he didn't play that much, but the guy just didn't really make mistakes. Like I always enjoyed having him on the floor and I kind of just felt like he was the man. And I got made fun of a little bit for how much I liked Ian Clark, but yeah, Ian Clark was definitely my smush Parker. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You can't complain about a guy who doesn't turn the ball over. That's all you can ask for out of a backup. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, so that was our uh, couple happy memories involving the NBA. We're excited to see its return, even though my Warriors will not be a part of it. JJ's Lakers, on the other hand, have a real chance at winning the championship. You know, assuming that it doesn't get shut down again. Who's going to be the new Rudy Gobert? I hope nobody. (laughs) But um, now we do, uh, you know, obviously there's been so many great things with sports. You can't forget about the other side of the emotional spectrum, which is the horror and the heartbreak. So JJ will start us off with some disappointment. I don't know what you got lined up for us, but let's hear it. Exactly, man. There's always going to be a give and take when you're heavily emotionally invested into a team. And unfortunately uh, for me, it's happened a couple times. Uh, First instance is with the uh, 2014 Los Angeles Angels season, specifically their playoff run, though. So a little little background behind that Uh, coming out of the 2014 season out of the regular season and going into the playoffs the angels had the best record in baseball we were by far the best offense in baseball we had mike trout we had albert pujols who was probably a little bit past his prime but he was still a great player we had um we had eric ibar we had howie kendrick who were all amazing talents didn't get all-star nods which i'm still a little peeved about but they you know they should have uh <laughs> And, you know, uh, our pitching was, I wouldn't say it's, it was great. It was just about average. Like, we had just about an average ERA. We just have, like, we're middle of the pack everything, which is also what I'm hoping for in this, in this year's Angels. But uh, that's another topic. And, you know, coming into that, it was the first time that Mike Trout had ever been to the playoffs. And he was MVP Mike Trout, like, into his fully getting into his prime, the, establishing himself as the best player in baseball. And we had such high expectations as Angels fans going into the playoffs. It was like, it was World Series or bust for us, you know? And we were going up against the Kansas City Royals. And man, 
even even going up against the Kansas City Royals was a bit of a feat in itself because that uh, that wild card game between the A's and the Royals, I believe, went into extra innings, and the A's definitely should have won that game. But you know, classic A's, they find a way to screw up their uh, wild card game. Dude, I don't even <laughs> like baseball that much, and I don't even want to talk about that. That was like the worst frequent thing ever. It just made me dislike John Lester forever. So I don't want to think about it, but yeah, anyway, just had to chime in. Oh yeah, most definitely. The A's are, the A's are gaining quite the reputation and I'm, I'm here for it to be honest, but I know you may not be, but I am. But anyways, yeah, going into the, going into that game, uh, into that series, excuse me. Uh, we're expecting to maybe even get a sweep out of this because, you know, the Royals pitching wasn't that much. They had a young guy named Jordano Ventura, rest in peace, who was a, just a hard throwing guy who his stuff wasn't really impressive. He just can, he just really threw hard. Um, they had a, they had a veteran in Edinson Volquez, I believe, who was kind of just like a spot up guy who was really, who was really underrated, I believe. But you know, it shouldn't have been a it shouldn't have been a threat to the Angels' offense at all. But you know, as uh, <laughs> as things go for a team who uh, who made the playoffs for the first time in I believe over five years, there was a there was a bit of a rough start. And you know, uh, we dropped the first game, and then we dropped the second game. <laughs> And then we proceeded to drop the third and fourth games. <laughs> and before you know it, like, we're done. It was it was completely shocking. I, I think to anyone that, like, our offense, in the offense was nowhere to be found, you know? It was like, uh, it was just a complete turnaround. Unfortunately, but, like, that kind of thing happens in baseball more often than not. I think more, more often than in any other sport. It's like... It's almost it's like superstition almost is like you were saying earlier. It's really just like it can be one thing that kind of changes course and players can just go cold in an instant, you know. That's can like you swing and missing at everything. And unfortunately for the Angels, that happened to their entire lineup, which is the worst possible time in the worst possible place. So uh that was a that was a terrible, terrible time for me because uh, specifically my friend and I, we're, we're all Angels fans and we're bragging. We have a couple friends who are Dodgers fans. We're bragging to them so hard because we had the, we were for once, for once we were better than the Dodgers. And we're, and we're talking to them so much about how we're going to, how we're going to get to the world series, how we're going to play them. We even gave them credit. We said, Hey, you guys may make it to the world series, but we're going to beat you there, you know, and to just have a first round exit. That's so embarrassing. You know, it was just one of those, uh, it was one of those very humbling moments. Well, you did give the Dodgers way too much credit. Uh, I will say that much, given that their rival made and won the World Series, the San Francisco Giants. Um, I would also say that the NHL playoffs are another example of something that can be really unpredictable and how getting a hot goalie really changes everything. But I agree, baseball can be totally rough. And to play a 162-game season... And get your heart broken like that, uh, you know, that that's really rough. And to just go cold all of a sudden. Is there one particular moment about that whole series that really sticks out to you as just horrible? 
I mean, it's probably pretty uh pretty cliche to say this, but it was the last out of the of the entire series. I believe it was a like a fly out to it was just some like dinker fly out to Alex Gordon to end the entire series. And it wasn't even a it wasn't even like an intense situation or anything. It was just like they had already they had already basically sealed the game. It was uh it was like I think it was top nine. Yeah, because we're at uh, we're at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, and it was just like some dinker pop fly, and it was the most like nonchalant ending. And you, <laughs> all Angels fans were just sitting there, like, "Are you kidding me? Like that's how <laughs> that's how this ends? Like what? The best offense in baseball, and we don't get anything from it. You know, it's just <laughs> even to this day, it's still frustrating." <laughs> Yeah, it's a brutal end to a bitter journey, to say the least. Um, absolutely cruel. Absolutely cruel. The only thing I'll say to make you feel better is that the Dodgers haven't exactly had prime playoff performance since, uh, specifically World Series, which oh, my man. Northern California friends really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, you better believe that uh, I still hang that over their heads. <laughs> Losing twice in the World Series and we have uh, the Angels have the most recent of the World Series wins. Shout out to 2002. <laughs> I believe last time the Dodgers won, I believe, was like in the 80s. So I still got that to hang over their heads. Well, I believe that uh, you actually had a pair of disappointing stories for us because one is just never good enough. Oh, of course, of course. You know, I've got a, you know, I've got a second one in the bag, and you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of along the same lines of like those high expectations and just like devastating disappointment. You know, it's uh, this one has to do with the 2012-2013 Los Angeles Lakers, and I'm sure you're you're more familiar with this one. This was the, uh, <laughs> this was the famed Dwight Howard era of the Lakers, where we had our big three of. A uh, forty-plus-year-old Steve Nash, uh, uh, aging but still good Kobe Bryant, and a Dwight Howard in his prime. I was so looking forward to this team, and we even still had Paul Gasol, who is an amazing all-star. Like this team was had the potential for NBA Finals, and like that was just that was just assumed. That wasn't even that wasn't with the Angels because the Angels at the beginning of the season we didn't really know that they were going to be as good as they were. The Los Angeles, uh, the Lakers at the beginning of the season, we all just assumed, oh, this is a finals team for sure. Like, there's no doubt about it. And uh, to get off to the start that we did, like, it was just this. The beginning of the season was just like it wasn't shock or it wasn't shocking. I wouldn't go that far, but it was just a little unsettling because you're not performing up to the uh, level that you should be, you know, and. With the Lakers and the talent that they had, they should have gotten off to a much better start. And, you know, that's how it lasted for the most of the season, which is really, really disappointing. And uh, to be, I believe it was uh, the most, like the dagger kind of in that season was late against actually your Warriors. Uh, it was uh, late in game. And Kobe was, uh, Kobe was I believe, attempting a fadeaway of some kind he was backing down clay and he gave him a little he gave him a little shimmy and i believe he turned for a turned for like a fadeaway jump shot and he just collapsed on the floor and you knew right from there 
that it was a uh, it was not gonna it was not good at all. And obviously, he uh, tore his Achilles after that. Shout out to him for going up to the free throw line and making two free throws, and then walking off under his own power shows just who Kobe was. And uh, but ever after ever since that, like. We got, uh, I believe we were the seven seed in that, uh, in that playoffs. And we just obviously got swept by the San Antonio Spurs. And I saw, I saw somewhere a while ago, someone tweeted out, Oh, the Lakers weren't even that good. Like they got swept by the, they got swept by the Spurs. And they're like, yeah, we didn't have Kobe. Like <laughs> he was injured. He had a torn Achilles. Where were you? Yeah. Why don't you take a hall of famer off of your playoff team and tell me how that one goes. Exactly. And by that point, Steve Nash was nowhere near the level that he was at uh, in Phoenix and just something wasn't sticking right with Dwight, you know. And so that team was just all kinds of dysfunctional, especially with the even with the little bickering between Kobe and Dwight in the middle of the season. It wasn't a. it was not the best team, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the Kobe torn Achilles moment very well, obviously. Um, you know, I didn't mind too much the Lakers not living up to expectations that season, but you never want to see a guy like that go down the way he did. Um, unless you're maybe a Raptors fan in game five of the finals and a certain Kevin Durant collapses, and then maybe for some weird reason you cheer. I don't know. Um, but yeah, shout out to Raptors fans, man. They're the classiest. It's, hey, it's not all of them. It's not all of them. But you also can't look me in the eyes and convince me that there weren't a handful of assholes in that stadium and outside watching on the screen. <laughs> oh, yeah, most definitely. No doubt. Uh, but I love the way that game ended, even though the Warriors did not win the series in the end. But yeah, just to see Kobe uh, go down like that was rough. and. You know, you could tell he got just physically worn down by having to carry a subpar team. Um, but it was awesome to see him come back and finish his career the right way. So yeah. uh, I think yeah. that was his, uh, that was his, I believe it was his age 35 season and he was still averaging 27. Like you can't, you can't repeat that. Only, only the best of the best, like the LeBrons and the, and the Michaels could do that. There's, only 27? Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a select few, you know? Uh, yeah, well, I guess we're going to do this, JJ. I guess we are going to have me talk about the 2014 NFC Championship. Oh, boy. Wow. Okay. Well, this is going to take some willpower to get through. But uh, before I start, I just want to say, Robbie, if you're listening, Please feel free to skip the next eight minutes or so. You don't need to relive this like I did. Um, I think you'll sleep better at night and probably be a just generally happier person. So uh, that's just my, you know, older sibling advice to you. But, okay, here we go. Well, first of all, I hate every single thing about this game. Like, every single thing that happened just came back to torment me as a Packers fan in this last stretch of the game. So my Green Bay Packers, um, why I am a fan of this team, you will find out later in the show, but uh, they are on the road facing the Seattle Seahawks in the NFC Championship. So they win the game, they go to the Super Bowl. 
And I kind of already hate the Seahawks for the fail Mary game back in 2012. Um, so... Yeah, I don't even know where to start. Okay, I guess, you know, the Seahawks are a tough team to play at CenturyLink Field. They have a great fan base. They're loud. Their defense was tough. Um, and, you know, but they weren't playing so well to start the game. And things are kind of going in favor of the Packers. And on the first scoring drive for the Packers, two times from the one-yard line on second and third and goal, they can't punch it into the end zone. And then they have to settle for a fourth and one field goal and go up three, nothing. And I'm like, okay, God, that kind of sucks. And then, uh, you know, they kick off to Seattle and Doug Baldwin fumbles the kickoff on the return, which I actually forgot about until I went back and did my research. So learning this was just even more painful and disturbing for me. But, you know, long story short, the Packers have good field position. They get inside the 10 yard line and Rodgers ends up uh, missing Jordy Nelson in the end zone as he had to fight through a little contact. Uh, you know, I had, I'm not saying there should have been a flag. It's the NFC Championship. I don't think there was, like, any penalty at all, but I think that the contact kind of made it so Jordy couldn't get to exactly where he wanted to be, and Rodgers threw it a little too much to his outside, so he couldn't bring the pass in. That should have been a touchdown, and same thing, they don't punch it in on third down and they got to kick field goal. So after all that, they're only up six, nothing, but the Seahawks are still playing like complete garbage and can't do anything. So at the end of the first quarter, Aaron Rodgers finds Randall Cobb in the back of the end zone and it's 13, nothing after a quarter. And I'm like, okay, like, I mean, I could live with this. Obviously I would have liked more points. Um, the second quarter is just a lot of defense on both sides, and it's 16-0 Green Bay at halftime. So, you know, the third quarter starts a little slow, and the fake field goal is when things really start going bad. So Seattle is down 16-0 and setting up to take a field goal with 450 to go in the third quarter. And I remember thinking that they might fake it, actually, because I'm thinking, you know, being down 16 to 3 doesn't exactly help things that much for you guys unless you believe you need to just get some points on the board and maybe that'll change how your offense is playing. Um, I don't know. But anyway, Pete Carroll had a greater mind than the Packers coaching staff and punter John Ryan throws a touchdown for Seattle. So it ends up being 16-7 instead of 16-3. And anyway, fast forward some more BS from this horrible game that I don't want to go back and think about. And the Packers are up 19 to seven with 5:13 to go in the game. And that is not a lot of time. So Russell Wilson throws a pass that gets deflected for his fourth interception. His fourth interception, which means fifth Seahawks turnover because of the Doug Baldwin fumble, and. So, like, they're just playing garbage, okay? Like, it is, this is uh, Los Angeles Angels 2014-esque, if you will. It is just clearly not that day. It is not happening. And, you know, whatever. That's sports, right? And so, Morgan Burnett, the Packers safety, intercepts the ball. He starts running it back. And Julius Peppers starts pointing to the ground, telling him to get down to just keep the possession and, you know, not risk fumbling it on the return and giving it back to the Seahawks or whatever. And I'm kind of just like, okay, that's weird. But like, yeah, I guess smart to keep the possession. Um, 
So clearly at this point, the Seahawks are just having the worst day ever. It's that's just that. Um, Mike McCarthy, I love you. You are a Super Bowl champion coach. But what the hell with all of your conservative play calling the entire second half? Like you so badly were playing not to lose in this game that there was no sense of aggression when you had maybe the best quarterback I've ever seen play the game, just talent-wise, pure talent. Um, well, I don't know about that. Well, it? you know, it's a, long, it's a long conversation. Obviously, your boy Tom Brady has greater accomplishments and all that, but Aaron Rodgers has done some pretty incredible things for an NFL QB. My point no is, doubt, you're no one doubt. of the best players in the league, and you're deciding to just do the most predictable calls against the league's best defense. So Packers are not killing a lot of time and they got to pump the ball back. And anyway, the Seahawks get the ball back like on their own half of the field with one timeout and three fifty-two left. And they're still down 19 to seven. And then all of a sudden they just turn it on and they get this like one minute scoring drive to make it 19, 14, really quick so yes okay the game is close right like obviously it's not over but the seahawks still have to do an onside kick so this is seriously maybe the most brutal moment i've ever had as a sports fan this onside kick so for anyone listening who doesn't fully understand an onside kick is what a team will do after scoring when they need to get the ball back and not kick it back to the other team to go play defense so instead of kicking it into the other end zone to the other team, like usual, you can try to kick it 10 yards down the field and recover it yourself. These are really hard to pull off. And even more so when the return team expects it as the Packers did. And so the Packers have this backup tight end on their special teams named Brandon Bostick. And all he has to do is just block Seattle's players and let his star receiver, Jordy Nelson, let the ball gently drop into his hands and the Packers keep possession and maybe they run out the clock and maybe they win the game and then maybe they go to the Super Bowl and play what would have been JJ's New England Patriots and that would have been a Brady-Rogers Super Bowl, which would have been epic. And so what happens on this kick is this guy, instead of blocking he just panics and looks up and freezes and tries to catch it himself. And he just bobbles it off his helmet. And a Seattle guy, Chris Matthews, is right there to recover. So Seattle gets the ball back. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, shit. What did I just watch? Um, I honestly wanted to cry when I rewatched that because it's even worse than I remembered, if that's possible. So now it's just like I'm living in a complete anxiety dream, but it's like, Hey, my defense has played really well. Maybe they'll stop the Seahawks. After all, they do need to score. Um, the Seahawks score so quickly that there's like a minute 20, a minute 25, something like that left when they get into the end zone. And all of a sudden they take a lead and they have a two point conversion and Packers safety. Ha ha Clinton Dix just watches the ball in the air as Russell Wilson, like throws up a prayer just to like, you know, even make something happen. And this Packers uh, safety just watches the ball in the air. Like, oh, that's really interesting. 
and some scrub tight end catches it, and all of a sudden it's 22-19, and we have to drive down the field and try to force overtime at the very least. So this is just a full-on anxiety dream. The Packers, they get the ball. They actually move the ball pretty well. A couple nice passes to Jordy Nelson. Um, They get into field goal range, and Mason Crosby knocks a 48-yarder through to tie the game at 22, which forces overtime. So even though I guess there's a 50-50 chance at this point with overtime, I feel pretty freaking awful because it seemed like we had about a 99% chance like 10 minutes ago in real time. And then there's the classic Aaron Rodgers coin toss here, which doesn't go his way. And the Seahawks get the ball. And since they went from the worst team of all time to the best team of all time in a matter of two drives, then, you know, they just, they go down the field, they throw a deep pass, Jermaine Curse catches it, and the Packers lose 28-22. And the voice of Joe Buck is going to forever haunt me. God, Seattle's going to the Super Bowl. And I was just like, this cannot be real life. Um, I, I just, I don't get it at all. I really don't. Uh, it was the most Seahawks thing ever, though, given how lucky they've been uh, from the fail Mary on. And I just, I mean, basically what happened, it's like there's no possible chance they can come back with less than four minutes left after playing the worst game ever. And a combination of the Packers not capitalizing on earlier opportunities for points, the very conservative play calling, the horrible defense at the end, and the worst onside kick blunder I have ever seen in my life all combined to give the Seahawks a fighting chance. Um, You know, it happened, and the Packers have not been to a Super Bowl since. They've been to two NFC championships and both times they got obliterated by the brains of Kyle Shanahan once as the offensive coordinator of the Atlanta Falcons once last year or this year. Wow. Time has gone really slow in the pandemic um, (laughs) by the 2020 49ers. And, you know, I just want to say to any girl out there who has ever caused me any type of pain that this is by far my most brutal heartbreak so there you have it, the 2014 NFC Championship. And yeah, we're leaving it all out there, man. <laughs> I just want to throw. I don't want to. I don't want to try and hurt you more, but uh, just a hypothetical out there. If the Packers would have uh, would have made it to the Super Bowl, how do you think they would have fared against my Patriots? I think it would have been really interesting. Uh, you know, don't forget that Aaron Rodgers was playing on like a partially torn calf or something like that. So he wasn't as mobile as we're used to seeing. And I think that, you know, Belichick obviously is the greatest coach of all time. He comes up with amazing defensive strategy. I think they would have made it really tough on the Packers offense. I think Mike McCarthy would have had to plan really well and also plan to be aggressive, but I really don't know how it would have gone. Uh, New England didn't have the greatest defense on that team, but they did have one of the most clutch players in NFL history. So I don't know. know, Give credit where credit's due. Aaron Rodgers is also a very clutch player. So that would have been, that would have been so fun to see, honestly. It would have been a lot of fun. And, you know, even though I 
don't particularly love your New England Patriots, I have to say, watching the Seahawks lose that Super Bowl the way they did and just have, like, you know, I don't know what they would call more brutal heartbreak for me. It's the NFC Championship um, versus that Super Bowl loss, if you're talking about the just situation for situation. But to see them get their hearts broken like that, like, kind of felt good on some level. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a consolation, you know? That was <laughs> that Super Bowl was almost one of my happiest moments, too. I almost put that on here. But, uh, you know, shout out to Pete Carroll, man. Thank God he didn't choose to run the ball. <sighs> the world will never understand. Exactly. Well, you know what? Let's uh let's get off of these let's get off of these bad memories and let's let's try and let's try and remember some more of the happier ones. You yes, know? please. I need a good ten minutes to recover, and I think that a Jonathan P. Jenkins story about England and Tunisia might just do that for me. Oh, most definitely. And to start this off, I should give a little bit of context. Uh my sister and I, you know, uh after we were four years apart, so I was graduating high school and she was graduating college, you know, and uh, we decided to uh, pool our money together and get a very, a very cheap trip to Europe. But uh, bored man, was that turned out to be amazing. You know, uh, we were in London, when Link, England and Tunisia, excuse me, when they played in the group stage match of the 20, 2018 FIFA World Cup. And, you know, I'd never really been into soccer or football, as everyone, everyone else in the world calls it. Obviously, being here in America, it's not the it's not the biggest sport, uh, but getting to see it over there, man, it's it's a totally different world. It's it's bigger than it's bigger than American football, you know, like in terms of Americans fandom for uh, American football, Europeans fandom for soccer is just incredible. And, uh, you know, we were walking around and we didn't even know that a game was going on at the time. We were walking around London in a little district called Brixton and we popped into this really cool community of like, uh, they were just like little either open, like outdoor dive bars or it was like outdoor dining and everything. It was a really cool place called Pops Brixton. And they had a huge TV set up and there were just a bunch of chairs everywhere. And there was so many people there and the game, we were lucky. The game was just about to start too. So we were like, wow, we better just sit down and watch this. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to expect. Soccer, soccer really hasn't been that interesting for me. And, you know, uh, might as well give it a shot while we're here in Europe. Uh, but to start out the game, man, I was so surprised by like how, how interconnected the, the team is with the fans, you know, or the fan is with the teams because any time that England would even cross the center line, there would, there would be like an uptick in the emotion. There would be an uptick in the kind of energy in the, in the like place that we were at. And anytime there was a shot on goal, anytime it was even remotely close to the goal, there was a shot remotely close to the goal. You could hear, you could hear the whole crowd just going, Oh, and then there would be that kind of moment of hesitation. It's like, is it going to go in? Is it not? And then <laughs> most of the times it didn't, but you know, there was just a little awe oh, afterwards. And man, even got out to such a fast start there. It was pretty, it was pretty like, I was so surprised to see that. 
that how interesting and how like fun that soccer could actually be, <laughs> especially just in the right environment. And in the 11th minute, I remember seeing uh, Harry Kane, dude. Harry Kane, by the way, after like after I saw this first game, I was totally hooked on the World Cup. Harry Kane had a magnificent World Cup run that year. He and England were just insane. They they Did totally, you win the good uh i believe so he he was uh he well, i can look that up for you but he was definitely one of the top players in the fifa world cup that year man like no doubt about it but anyways in the 11th minute he gets a little he gets a little stinger past the goalie and the and the crowd goes like literally it was pandemonium there Everyone was jumping and cheering. Beers were flying everywhere. Cans were being cans were being tossed around. It was it was crazy to see that like that kind of energy for a soccer match. I it was I was blown away by how fun that was. And you know, shout out to Tunisia, man, because Tunisia shouldn't have been a problem at all for England, but uh, they got a they got a good they got a good foul call like right uh, right next to the goal uh, like in the thirty fifth minute and they got a penalty kick from there and man there was the there was the first African goal in that World Cup too and they just get, they just sneak a little PK by the uh, England goalie and <laughs> you could, you could see there's highs and there's lows for England too you could see just the energy be sucked out of the place too it was it was really uh it was really amazing to see because i was kind of bummed out too i didn't think i could get like that emotionally invested into a team like that quickly but man i was right there with everyone else and it kind of just it kind of puttered along for the next uh for like most of the game there's a there's a few shots on goal like there was a few moments of like oh will it like will it go in and and then it kind of just uh, pittered away, you know, but, and it went into stoppage time. Uh, England was charging down and they like, by some grace of God, they got a corner kick. And that was like, that was going to be their like almost last chance to get a goal in. Cause it was already one minute into stoppage time. I think there was, they only had like three or four minutes of it anyways. And so, uh, the the corner they serve the corner it's coming in dude and everyone's on their feet they're like oh there may be a chance there's a there's one England forward and there was one Tunisia defender jumping up for it trying one trying to header it in one trying to header it away and it deflects off of the Tunisia defender's shoulder and <laughs> to who but Harry Kane dude. Harry Kane was just waiting by the back side of the goal and it just came, it just was coming right at him. And it looked like in that moment, it was just slow motion. You could just see it all clicked for everyone. Like at the same time, they were like, oh, they were like, oh my God. And Harry Kane just headers it in. And it was, it was complete bedlam there, dude. It was one of one of the most like live experiences that I've ever had. And it even it made it even better, honestly, that it was a soccer match that did that because it was completely unexpected. And England went on to win two to one. And man, just the range of like highs and lows emotionally that I went through that game, it was it was just amazing, man. Shout out to Harry Kane. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. I mean I've never actually watched a World Cup game 
in a country where that country was playing other than, of course, the USA, which I feel like doesn't count. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I can imagine what that's got to be like. Uh, the closest I've ever come to crazy emotion like that in soccer is when actually in that same World Cup, Mexico is playing their last um, group stage game against Sweden. And we're in this bar that's like seriously set aside for Mexico fans in New York. And it's like, it's like 11 in the morning or something. And but we're still kind of adjusting to East Coast time. So it just, it just feels like I'm like, you know, half awake the first 10 minutes of the game. And it's going really poorly. They end up getting down three, nothing to Sweden. And, you know, Germany's playing South Korea at the same time. And, you know, the fate of Mexico, whether they're going to move on to the knockout stage or not, was, you know, in question. And everyone expects the defending champs, Germany, to come through. But they switched the TV channel as they're reviewing a goal to see if it was offsides from South Korea, like late in the game, like approaching stoppage time. And as they switch the channel, the ref signals that the goal counts and the Korea players start running on the field. So even though Mexico is losing three, nothing, this bar just explodes and, you know, same thing, beer flying everywhere, uh, chanting, stuff like that. It's uh, so that was pretty unbelievable to be a part of, but I have to imagine that being in England during a game like that, so dramatic. Uh, yeah, just nothing like that at all. And, um, you know, I got to ask, was there any sense of negativity early on? Because, you know, just hearing British commentators and, you know, England soccer fans, they can just be so dire and so harsh toward their team. Uh, you know, I didn't hear, I didn't hear much towards their team themselves other than a few, other than a few just like discrepancies of some dumb mistakes or anything like that. But what I will say actually about, uh, the British is that the people that we set, uh, that we people that we met there, they were so inviting of my sister and I that like, it was, it was really amazing to see too, because we were just gonna, we were just gonna sit there quietly and kind of drink our beer and watch the game, you know, and the British, uh, and everyone around us just started talking with us. And like, they obviously figured out that we were American and they and like, there are some nuances of the game that we didn't really understand. And they'd explain it to us and they were just super, they were super nice about it. And it was really just, that made the experience so much better, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can imagine it's just, uh, and it's really cool to see a culture like that just being so inviting. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're here, why we're telling these stories and why we talk about sports so much and why we miss them right now. I mean, like, it's one of the rare things that brings strangers together where you could just be giving hugs and high-fiving and making friends out of nowhere all because of the common interest of a team. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> nothing like a, nothing, no bond like a sports bond. Yeah, and that World Cup was incredible. Even the game that eliminated England against Croatia in the semifinal, that was super exciting back and forth game uh, and a lot of fun to watch. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the World Cup, whatever it's scheduled for next, and, you know, that the pandemic is not a factor by then and we can relive some of these memories and create new ones, but... You know, uh, we'll just have to see. I guess we're going day by day over here. 
Yeah, and hopefully the U.S. can actually qualify this time, you know, <laughs> and not just not just be completely relying on Christian Pulisic. Hopefully we hopefully we can get further than that. But I digress. <laughs> we shall see. Well, to continue in the spirit of happiness and to continue in the spirit of soccer, uh, I know I said I didn't. I wasn't like an insane fanatic of the USA men's national team, but I absolutely love the USA women's national team. And I'm going to preface this segment by saying that if you're in the population of just being a complete hater of women's professional sports, such as the US women's national team or the WNBA, uh, you're an idiot. And if you are in this group of people, then these women are so much better at what they do than like 99.8% of you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the story from the 2011 World Cup. Um, <laughs> so this is the 2011 World Cup quarterfinal, and the U.S. is playing just Brazil, who is another great team uh, with the great soccer player, Marta. And... 76 seconds into the game, which for you non-soccer fans is like nothing. Uh, Shannon Box has like a low cross that ends up leading to an own goal that puts the USA up one nothing. So it's like all of a sudden, just quick turn of events and the US goes up one nothing, And it's like, oh, that's kind of weird for two really even teams. And, you know, you're kind of curious to see what's going to happen and how Brazil might respond. And so for the rest of the first half and... The next uh, 20 minutes of to start the second half, it's a pretty back and forth game. I wouldn't say one team looked too dominant over the other, but it's the 65th minute and the U.S. is still up one nothing, and Brazil has this great scoring chance. And Marta makes this amazing play to flick the ball up past the U.S. defender, and it looks like she's going in the score, and Rachel Bueller completely shoves her down, and the ref calls a foul, rightly so. Uh, and gives Bueller a red card and awards Brazil the penalty kick. And so now the U.S. has to face the rest of this game, uh, plus overtime, possibly, uh, playing 10 versus 11. And the score is likely going to be 1-1 because penalty kicks more often than not go in. And so all this is fine. I'm not even, like, anti-Brazil or whatever. I'm just enjoying a good game. Obviously rooting for the U.S., but this is when the real drama starts. So Cristiane of Brazil goes to take the kick and the whistle blows and she just blasts it toward the right side of the goal. But the U.S. goalie, Hope Solo, guesses correctly and makes this great save to punch the ball away and keep the U.S. lead at 1-0. And they're like celebrating because the ball goes out of bounds and it's this like big hype moment. And then all of a sudden you hear this whistle and the ref says that Solo jumped off her line too early before the kick actually happened, and she awarded a re-kick before Brazil. So keep in mind that this is in the age before VAR when you can go back and look super closely at these things. So I've watched this clip. I've gone back and watched this clip in slow motion, different angles, many times because I'm a nerd, and I've paused it at different frames and like really looked deep into this one. I really don't think she jumped too early. If you pause right before the kick, Solo was bending down, getting ready to take her step. 
If you pause when Cristiani makes contact with the ball, Solo's foot is in the air and she's moving on the way to make her step. Either way, it felt like an extreme call to redo the entire penalty over something just too close to call. Like for me, it's like reversing the decision of the piston cup at the beginning of cars and just deciding that chick Hicks won. Like it just doesn't make sense. So, wow, that far. Yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> so they retake the kick, but this time it's Marta who comes up to take the kick. Uh, one of the greatest female soccer players ever, ever uh, certainly of her era. And she, um, she like, you know, blasts the kick in, buries it one, one, and the game goes to overtime. Ultimately, no more scoring for the rest of the 25 minutes. And the U S has to play 10 versus 11 in overtime. And Overtime gets off to a nice little start, but two minutes into overtime, you know who, Marta, has this beautiful left-footed touch near the box that hits the post and goes into the back of the net to put Brazil up 2-1. Hope Solo couldn't get there in time. It was an amazing play. But at this point, given all the drama from the previous goal to make it 1-1, it's like not going well. Like I'm not in a good mood. So 12 year old me and my eight year old younger brother are alone in the house watching this game. And if you know anything about me or my family, then you also know that whatever energy that's going on inside the house is something you wanted to get the hell away from. I mean, once it goes to two, one, we're just so angry at this game. We're like on the brink of a complete meltdown and it's not going well at all. So yeah, there's like still about 30 minutes to play, but that's 30 minutes of torture and a complete anxiety dream. And so what happens is, you know, it's not going well. It's not going well. The U.S. is like desperately trying to make something happen. They use all their subs. Uh, you know, time ticks away. Time ticks away. And, you know, whatever. It's not looking well. And all of a sudden there's like probably about two minutes ago in the game, you know, we're into stoppage time and I'm all pissed off for, you know, not actually pissed at Carly Lloyd, but just 12 year old me can't control myself. And so I just say out loud, Carly Lloyd, why don't you actually do something? And she did just that. She kicks it up the field to Megan Rapino, who just, bombs it with her left foot from near half field into the box. And many of you know what happens next. Abby Wambach beats the keeper to the ball, gets her head on it and heads it into the right side of the goal. And in live action, I couldn't tell for sure if she had scored or just missed and hit the outside of the net. But when I saw Abby running in a celebration mood, just like flailing her hands in a wide open mouth, Then the celebration just quickly begins and my brother and I are just like jumping up and down, hugging each other, screaming, freaking out. I'll never forget the call of like, Abby Wambach has saved the USA's life. And it was was just amazing. And that was just to tie the game and give them new life. So just a last gasp of hope kind of play. And, you know, the whistle blows and we still have to endure a penalty shootout. And 
So the PKs start, and um, you know, Shannon Box makes her first kick. Brazil scores their first kick. We make our second. They make their second. We make our third. Then the same poor girl, Diane, who had the own goal in the second minute of the game, got her PK saved by Hope Solo. And then, you know, we make the next kick. They make their next kick to stay alive. And Ali Krieger comes up and hits the dagger. And it was like, good night. Miracles do happen. Um, maybe reverse 2014 NFC Championship game. Sorry, it's going to be in my conscience for days now. Um, but yeah, that was a moment, even though I was not surrounded by plenty of fans and there were no alcoholic beverages spewing in the air, just being there with my younger brother and both feeling so passionate about the U.S. women's team and to see that happen was pretty beautiful. I feel like I can't fully describe what it was really like in that house. Definitely, man. Now, would you... You sound like you love that team to death. Would you place that team over the most recent uh, World Cup women's team? Uh, well, I love all the U.S. women's teams, especially 2015 as well, which won the championship and Carly Lloyd turned into Superman during the final match against Japan. Um, I'm not going to pick favorites here. Uh, it did stink that the... U.S. lost a close finals to Japan uh, in 2011, and 2019 was pretty awesome with Megan Rapinoe saying she wasn't going to go to the White House and then turning into a little bit of a Superman herself. Um, the, the one difference I would say between the 2019 team and the 2011 team is that I developed a very strong fandom for midfielder Rose Lavelle, and to the point where my family calls it obsession, but I just call it uh, being a very large, genuine fan. And <laughs> she was not on that 2011 team. So I would say that is the main highlight of the 2019 team is getting to watch Rose badass Lavelle. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's keep these good stories rolling, man. How about that? And, you know, <laughs> I got a, I got another one myself, and you know this is the one that uh, beat out the 2014 Super Bowl story. But luckily for me, it's a it's the 2017 Super Bowl story. Super yeah, Bowl I don't need any more of the Seahawks. I don't. But I will say that when I was brainstorming my least favorite games, this uh, Super Bowl 51 actually kind of was in my list too. So have at it, won't you? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure it was in uh, many people's lists, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was watching, I was watching the Super Bowl at a friend's house and, you know, as one does, we, uh, we put a little bet on it, but being a Patriots fan and being bombarded all the time with accusations of being a, being a bandwagon and whatnot, which I honestly, I say I, I won't deny that, but I also will deny it because I originated my fandom for the Patriots just by simply seeing my brother be a fan. And I was like, well, if he's a fan, I want to be a fan. So I guess you, I guess I bandwagoned on my brother. But anyways, back to the story, you know, is kind of going all out on the bets. There was a, there was a considerable amount of, uh, considerable amount of things. I'll say <laughs> a little cash, little t-shirts, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, and 
honestly, we were so close to not even making making it to the Super Bowl that I was just so happy that we were there because that was the yeah, that it was, was great. The, it was great. <laughs> that was the year the Jaguars for some reason were really good. It was basically their defense. It was just like Jalen Ramsey, um, Calais Campbell, um, Telvin Smith. Those like those dudes were stellar when they were led by a, a one Blake Bortles of all people. <laughs> I love you, Blake. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, no hate to Blake Bortles. He'll, he's much more talented than uh, his job than I probably will ever be at mine. But you know, anyways, <laughs> uh, it was uh, at the beginning of the game. It was really weird because we had these two like super potent, potent offenses. And it, there was no scoring in the first quarter, you know? I thought it was, like, setting up to just be a defensive battle, which was, like, kind of surprising. Not Maybe not so much for the Falcons because they had just, like, a young, scrappy, and, like, really fast defense with, like, Deion Jones, Robert Alford, and a bunch of other guys like Desmond Trufant and things like that. But, you know, going into the second quarter, I was like, okay, so this is going to be kind of like a – it won't be an offensive shootout. This will be a little less interesting, you know, kind of like, kind of like the uh, was twenty nineteen Super Bowl where it was just like really boring. Uh, but all of a sudden, the Atlanta scores one touchdown, uh, and then there's another like the Patriots just go three and out, and I'm like, well, okay, that's not great. Like we gotta we gotta respond here. And then they score again, and it's 14-0. And I'm like, okay, that's even more not great. Like, <laughs> we really got to get going now. And so, you know, the Patriots, they get the they get the ball, and they're driving a little bit. They got they're getting a little like they're getting a little rhythm into their drive. They they get to I think about like the 50 yard line, and then Tom Brady snaps the ball. Steps back in the pocket, you know, he sits back there for like two or three counts and he tries to fit a little slant pass into, I think it was Chris Hogan and Deion Jones, or sorry, excuse me, um, Robert Alford read it all the way and he just dove on it and picked it off. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, I don't know if you've seen the mini documentary after, after the Super Bowl, uh, it was made, but there's one shot of Robert Alford running down the sideline and was 40 year old Tom Brady just try, trying to lay out and tackle him. And it just like was one of the most, it was one of the like most pathetic shots I've ever seen. <laughs> and Robert Alford just runs it all the way back for a pick six and, and it go and they go down 21, nothing. And like, at this point I'm feeling like complete garbage, you know, going into halftime. You're down. We get a field goal after that, but you're only down, or we're down twenty-one-three. So we're not feeling great. Coming out of coming out of half, you know, there's a little glimmer of hope. Like, okay, if we're gonna do something, like we have to get it now. We have to start doing it now. We have to get going. And uh, the <laughs> the Falcons go down and score and make it twenty-eight-three. And at that point, I'll be honest. I had like I'd given up pretty much all hope. I was like, okay, well, the Falcons can basically just like you know run the clock down from here, even though it's like halfway through the third. They're up twenty-five points, which is like the largest deficit. Uh, nobody had ever come back from a deficit that large in the Super Bowl. 
Hey, I mean, who could blame you? I, I can't blame you for giving up hope at that point. I remember Tevin Coleman running that fourth touchdown in, just thinking like, wow, I don't know what it is, but Atlanta looks faster, they look stronger, and they look better prepared. And exactly. then, I guess, a switch flipped, and it didn't take a power outage like it did in Super Bowl Forty Eight. Yeah, you know, and like from that from that moment on out, it was there was like we had to go for every every fourth down, and even on the even on the first of the very first drive after that, I remember there was a fourth down, and we were like, okay, like we really have to get this. And Tom Brady, old reliable, you know, Julian Edelman, he just hits a little slant, and you're like, okay, all right, that's fine. And then they keep getting those little like those just little incremental movements and you're like okay this is this is at least good we won't be like totally obliterated and then we finally get a score with james james white kind of juking out his first defender and like skirting into the end zone just getting a little dive in we're like all right it's like 20 uh all right now it's not too bad like at least we made it a little closer and then we get a three and out on them again or we get a not again, sorry. We get a three and out on them though. And we're like, okay, this is even better. Like, and we uh we get the ball back and we start driving again. And we're like, all right, this is this is really good. We seem to have a little rhythm now. And uh unfortunately we didn't we didn't get the score on that, or we didn't get the touchdown on that, but you know, old old reliable Gostowski, <laughs> the uh, the savior after Adam and Terry, knocked one through for us. And that uh and that made it a two score game. And we're like, all right, now like you're getting your you're getting your hope back. You're like, okay, we're down 16. Like everything has to go right for us for from here on out, but we have a shot. And so the very like the very next drive, it's like it's almost it's almost a fact like we need to get a turnover. We can't let them we can't let them score and we definitely can't let them uh just like waste a ton of clock, you know? And I don't know what, it was a godsend of a gift. There's, we sent Dante Hightower on an outside blitz and Devonte Freeman completely misses the block. I don't know what he was doing. So Hightower just gets a free run at Matt Ryan. And thank God Matt Ryan decided to start his throwing, throwing motion right when Hightower got there. Because otherwise he may, have, he may have been able to at least like hold on to the ball. But Hightower knocks it loose. We recover in Falcons territory. And, we're, and now, now it's really starting to come back. You know, now, now a bunch of hope is getting up again. We're like, all right, we have, we have a magnificent chance now. Like, we got to score here. So I got to ask you at this point, and I do want to correct myself from earlier. The power outage was Super Bowl 47, not Super Bowl 48. Um, but I do, I do want to ask you, like, after this turnover at this point, is this when you're not only like, okay, now I got some hope, but are you all of a sudden like, no, we're going to do this? Or do you still feel like it's too tough to pull off? Um, I'll say I'm somewhere, I'm, I'm somewhere in between that, you know, because I haven't given up hope where it's like, it's too tough, but I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking quite yet. Okay. This is just a certainty. Like it's fate right now. You know, there was still, there was still that murky area. Uh, there was like, uh, we're getting our rhythm and it's starting to look like that. You know, it's starting to look like there's a chance, man. And, you know, we go, we go down the field, you know, we get the score to Amendola 
and we get the you know the fake uh, the fake overthrow, and James White runs it in for the two point conversion, and we're like, all right, we're only down eight now. Like this is like a legit shot here, and you know all the all the Falcons had to do at this point was just run the ball, get in field goal range, hit a field goal, and that would have been that would have been basically game over, you know, and uh, and like. At the beginning of their drive, the Patriots actually played really good defense. We almost got we almost got them to a three and out, but they uh, they converted, and then they got a little bit more movement. and the And then the one play that I thought was really the dagger was um, Matt Ryan snaps the ball, and you know he's looking he's looking at his receivers. Nobody's really open. Uh, the like the line is starting to collapse, and their uh, linemen coming down on his neck. And so he escapes out of the pocket a little bit and he just throws up a absolute dime, like perfect placement to Julio Jones and Julio, like the most amazing toe tap catch I've ever seen in the Super Bowl. It was that play was like one of the most impressive and forgotten Super Bowl plays that I've ever seen. You know, you say that that toe tap was greater than the Mario Manningham toe tap in Super Bowl 46. Ooh, I don't know. I think, I think so. Just cause man, Julio, Julio extended. He couldn't have extended possibly more and Matt Ryan couldn't have placed it in a more perfect spot because um oh I'm forgetting the I'm forgetting the DB's name who was on him, but he was all over him and he had his hand up and it missed his the ball missed his hand by I'd say no more than a couple inches. And it fit perfectly into Julio's spot. Julio got that second foot down and that was just like that was that was a crusher for me. I thought for sure after that, because that put them in field goal range too. I thought for sure after that, there was like, okay, they're just going to run the ball here three times, kick a field goal and it's over, you know? And I don't know. I don't really know what Dan Quinn was thinking at that time, but thank God he was thinking what he was (laughs) because they didn't run the ball and they took a sack on the first play or the second, uh, first or second down. And that was like, oh, thank God, because uh, that pushed it further out. They were still in uh, field goal range, but, you know, it was, uh, was going to be like a little bit more risky of a field goal. And then it got to third down and they actually completed they actually completed a pass. They didn't get a first down, but they completed the pass and got back in like uh, just good field goal range where it was going to be a lot easier. And there was a call on the, or there was a flag down. And I was like, oh my God, please. I was praying. I was praying. And, uh, and the official gets on and he says, holding offense. And I jumped up out of my seat. I was thank God, you know? And so that pushed that for sure pushed them out of field goal range. And all Falcons fans were probably just like queezing at that point. Because it was after that, they tried to get another pass in to get to back in field goal range, but that obviously didn't work. And so they had to punt it back to uh to the GOAT, you know, with a little time left on the clock and time to time to get back uh, you know, get the eight points that we needed to tie the game. And Tom Brady, in usual Tom Brady fashion, took his team down the field 
we get the touchdown, we get the little we get the little screen pass to Amendola for the two point conversion. And at this point, at this point, this is where I'm like, okay, this is meant to be, you know, like we come back this far. There's no way we're not winning this game. And we go to overtime. We get the, and honestly, it's, this was a, this, this like the coin flip is, this was just similar to the 2018 AFC championship. I don't know if you remember that game. It was the Patriots and the chiefs as well. It was one of those situations where like whoever gets the ball first is just going to score and win the game, which, you know, as I've looked back on it, isn't one of the, isn't one of the best uh, NFL rules, but that's for another time. And uh, we, uh, we get the ball. Thank God. And, that Brady, Brady just dots it up, dots it up, dots it up, dots it up. And there are a few crucial third down conversions that we had on that, on that drive, which is just <laughs> too nerve wracking to say. And the final play, which is like almost just euphoric, <laughs> almost just euphoric for me, was a little pitch out to James White. He's running, he's running. It didn't look it honestly didn't look good from like where he was in the position looking down. Cause they had, they had a lot of defenders out there already. They're like, they looked pretty prepared for that pitch. And yeah, James, I, I couldn't and, watch at this point. <laughs> James White and this little, he's a pretty small dude and he's pretty shifty. I don't know how he was able to, but he was able to just measle his way into measle his way and then stretch and get past and get past the goal line. And after that, I just, I ran out of my friend's house. I ran down the block. I was screaming. <laughs> I was so excited. And man, it was even better because nobody else in that house uh, that I was watching was a Patriots fan. It was just me. You know, a lot of people like they would maybe rejoice the rejoice with like friends, but I think it made it so much better that all my friends despised the Patriots. I could hold that over them for forever. I still hold it over them. <laughs> and they're, they aren't even Falcons fans. They're just part of the 99% of the NFL that hates the Patriots. So yeah, I sympathize yeah. with your friends. I am not a Falcons <laughs> fan necessarily, but that was brutal. And I don't even think I've ever seen you scream. So Clearly, this was an insane moment, but I mean, it had to be, you know, it's, uh, I talked about the 2014 NFC Championship. I think that, you know, if this happened to the Packers, that would have been an even tougher pill to swallow. So I really do feel for the Falcons fans. Um, that's not to take away from your joy. I know, you know, when you're... Oh, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, everyone hated the Warriors for five years and hopefully they are good enough next year that people can hate them again. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. They hate you when they're, you're winning. Yeah. That, you know. was, uh, that was unreal. Actually, uh, I was just sitting there so bitter at the end of that game. And we had a Super Bowl party at one of my friend's house and we would do the squares, you know, you'd pay money for the squares. And the oh, yeah. only perk is that, my mom's name was on the square that had Patriots four and Falcons eight. And so when James White runs in that score, I'm just sitting there with a blank expression on my face. And my friend's dad comes up and hands me like the $10 bill or whatever it is. And I just grab it without saying anything. 
And I'm like, yeah, he probably thinks I am a huge asshole right now, but like, I don't have the willpower to talk. So (laughs) yeah, you know, you just gotta, you gotta feel for Kyle Shanahan, man. He's, he's had the worst luck when it comes to Super Bowls. (laughs) Well, it seems like he might get back if the Niners can stay as good as they were last year. Cause, uh, Man, they were right there, but yeah, Kyle Shanahan, I I know how much you would love to have a Super Bowl redemption. Oh, yeah. If you're watching this, Kyle Shanahan, we feel for you, you know? One of us feels for you more than the other. <laughs> Probably. Probably. I feel a little bit. More so, on the, more so on the second try around. First try, I could, yeah, I could probably care less. <laughs> Well, we know it's been quite a long episode, but we do have one more story. It is football-related, only this time it is college football, and this goes all the way back to 2003. And so a quick background on my family. Both of my parents went to the University of California, and they have been so hardcore about Cal my entire life. You know, they brainwashed their three children into years of torture as a fan um, that even now as a UC Santa Barbara gaucho, I haven't really fully escaped. (laughs) But uh, this is a happy memory. And so I was four years old and I went with my dad to see Cal take on number three ranked USC at Memorial Stadium. And the Cal quarterback was Aaron Rodgers, which is how I became a fan of the Packers and the NFL. Um, and the future Heisman Trophy winner, Matt Leinert, was the quarterback for USC. So Cal is a really good team. Uh, Jeff Tedford, their coach for many years, uh, this was early in his tenure. He turned the program around. Uh, obviously, having a guy like Aaron Rodgers doesn't hurt. Um, but Cal has this great first half, and they go – into the break up 21 to seven, but you know, USC is ranked number three for a reason. And the third quarter doesn't exactly go so well. Uh, Aaron Rodgers throws a pick six. He kind of has a messed up shoulder and he ends up coming out of the game. And so Reggie Robertson, who was the Cal quarterback before Aaron Rodgers, still a really good player uh, comes in for Cal and they go into the fourth quarter tied at 21 and just a quick skip of the fourth quarter, a lot of defense, 24-24, end of regulation. Uh, Now, college overtime is not like NFL overtime, as you know. So both teams do get the ball and they get a chance to score. And so on the first play of overtime, USC fumbles the ball and Cal recovers. And at this point, uh, you know, if you don't know much about college football overtime, Cal would get the ball at the 25 yard line, which is considered field goal range, even for uh, most college kickers. And so things are looking pretty good. And I do love Jeff Tedford and all he did for the program, but in classic Cal fashion, they just play for the field goal and try to win the game. But naturally the kick goes up and they miss. And, you know, I don't remember a whole lot being a four-year-old, but I can sense enough that this is really stressful there's a lot of emotion and that whatever just happened was something that was not supposed to happen. And we were probably supposed to win the game. And well, do you remember, uh, do you remember how bad that miss was? Was it like, was it like a close, like 
by thin thin margins miss or was it like a kind of Blair Walsh on the Minnesota Vikings against the Seahawks moment where it was just like a complete botchery? Thank you for reminding me of another time that the Seahawks had luck go their way. That actually wasn't sarcastic because I didn't care that the Vikings lost that game so much. But yeah, that's that was just a very Seahawk thing. Um, I do not remember the miss specifically. All I know is that it did not go through the uprights and it was not pretty. (laughs) You know, when something like that happens, like, and you have a chance to close it out, especially when it would be a massive upset like that, you're probably going to lose the game. So the second overtime comes and Cal is facing a third and six at the 21 yard line. And Reggie Robertson comes up with one of the great, plays in Cal football history. He takes the snap, runs a play fake, and just throws an absolute dart between two defenders into the end zone for a Cal touchdown. Uh, This was really just to keep us alive because USC quickly scores and ties the game at 31, and we're going into a third overtime. Now in this one, USC gets the ball first, and they end up missing a field goal. And so it's like, okay, here we go again. And surprisingly, Cal just plays for the field goal once again. But this time, from 38 yards out, they knock it through. They pull off the upset 34 to 31. And Memorial Stadium is absolutely rocking. I would say the best part of this memory for me is that my dad is holding me flat across his arms and tossing me up and down lightly, going like, yeah, yeah. He's like freaking out. And it's great, but I'm kind of wearing some loose pants. So with each toss, they just drop a little bit lower and lower to the point where my entire butt is just showing. And I try to get his attention and I'm like, hey, dad, my pants are falling down. Dad, dad, my pants are falling down. And then finally he just notices and goes, oh. (laughs) (laughs) There are more important things going on. Come on, Greg. (laughs) There are clearly more important things going on. Um. But it truly was a happy memory for me, my dad, and Cal football. And, you know, getting to flash your naked butt at the USC fans is never a bad thing. Uh, You know, side note, Cal would not beat USC again until 2018. So every year that went by and we lost, this memory became a little bit sweeter. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, yeah, after, after uh, after those... USC days they haven't been they haven't been good for many years after that there was only the Sam Darnold era that I can really think of that we really uh we really returned to that form somewhat but that was only for about two years so you know we're kind of we're kind of right there with Cal in that we (laughs) we haven't experienced as long long uh long growth of success in our football programs for for quite some time well both programs, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see if there even is college football this next year. That's, uh, that is definitely to be determined. So we'll see about that. But yes, truly great memories. Um, thank you for our stories. We are going to end this podcast with one little thing called Shout Out To. And this is where you can take the opportunity to give a shout out to something that could be completely related to sports or completely unrelated to sports. My shout out today is going to go to another podcast. Actually, uh, they are called pass it down and I may or may not have some connections to those people, but 
they do do a fantastic job. Uh, I've enjoyed every episode. I think if you like this, you will definitely like this podcast. Um, and you know, they've, they've done a variety of things. They've talked about racial challenges in the world of sports with saints star player, Cam Jordan and his father, Steve. They've discussed the reality of COVID-19 with a couple medical experts and what to expect for the future, uh, whether that be sports or otherwise. And I know that many more great things are yet to come. I will say the older host is a little bit weird. He's good, but he's just a little weird. Um, and the younger host is a true star in the making with a great mind. Uh, I'm really excited for the future of the Pass It Down podcast. And I really recommend that you check it out, especially if you like this. Check it out. Even if you hated this, go check them out. Um, yeah, pass it down. You know, uh, my shout out is a little uh, is a little personal to me. It's uh, if you haven't uh, gathered by any of our bios or anything, Greg and I are students that attend UC Santa Barbara, and uh, we both are actually on the uh, Ultimate Frisbee Club team there, the B team blackout ultimate and you know uh that's how we actually met and became friends and kind of birthed this idea and you know my shout out is to those guys man if you guys are watching just know that we miss you guys we hope that we can uh when we get back that we can still have practices and uh i've just been uh missing the boys lately you know yeah i couldn't agree more it's been a really really weird time blackout you know how i feel about you i love you guys We'll be back. I have no doubt about that. But um, in the meantime, we want everyone to stay safe. And yeah, that concludes this long episode. If you made it this far, thank you all so much for taking part in the launching of Potty Train Me. We hope that you enjoyed these stories. We had a great time sharing them. We'll be back soon enough. But until then, stay safe and be true to yourself. Peace. Thank you.